1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Jesus does not sin. Whoever sins as has neither seen him nor known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So, let's go back up to verse 1, and I, we made it the first service. I think we can make it again through these Nine verses, which you can tell, or some of them that spark a very interesting curiosity, almost a collision. It's something so definitive, it seems. How can that be? Well, first we want to start, of course, in verse 1. Behold what manner of love. Behold. The word there speaks of to look closely, um, to consider, to observe even to discover with comprehension. In other words, you're, you're gazing at it, you're looking into it, you're, 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 you're this is, uh, not just a value-based curiosity, but something even deeper. Some years ago, I was able to travel with Kim. Um, my wife, her and I went to Washington, D.C. And during the trip there, we were able to connect with a person who said, hey, I, um, I can take you like backstage in the back room of where I work, which happened to be the Library of Congress. I'm like, hmm, it's like a really big bookstore where you can't check anything out, right? I mean, basically. So we're joking. He says, yeah, if you want, just meet me and I'll, I'll take you, you know, we'll go in tomorrow morning. So I really didn't know what to expect, you know. So we go in, Kim and I, and as we're coming through the back and he's walking us through, and of course he, we were credentialed so we could just kind of move through. And... Uh, he stops at this one point, and he has to sign in, kind of sign for this stuff. And he says, oh, it came, okay. So he's opening this stuff up, and it's all packaged real cool. He hands me this rounded-off Rubik's Cube, it looked like. You know, no colors. It was all black and white. It was, it was called cuneiform. And it was this Egyptian rock with all these hieroglyphic-looking things on it. And so here he, oh, check this out. And when he tells me what it is, I'm like, I, I do not want to drop this. <laughs> you know, he's like, oops. So I'm like, I, you know, it really kind of, you're really sober-minded really fast. I think I'm holding something that's like 3,000 years old. This got this writing. And I was like, trying to, of course, it's just, anyway, it kind of set the mindset like, wow. It's a very interesting place where this guy gets to work. We go around the corner and into another room and around. And he comes into this one area and... Uh, he had to do some different things, checking in and some other security stuff, and we go through, and he sets up this uh, book frame type of thing, and we put on these thin gloves, and he breaks out this book, and it's real small, not real big, and he just lays it there. 
And he begins to explain that this basic, I can't remember the exact word he used, but it was, it was a, a devotional type book that George Washington used. And it had his writing in it. It had his, you know, it's very distinct, very fine, clear, legible writing. And he's just, all these little thoughts and things. And, you know, he's turning the page, he's turning the page, he turned the pages very, very delicately. Like you're, you're trying to grasp reality, like the person, the president, first president, George Washington, held this. He, he sat with a lamp and wrote in this. And I just kind of trying to grasp this whole thing. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I was surprised how it impacted me because, you know, I have never, I'd never looked that way. I've never looked at any other secular book the way I looked at that particular book. Well, why? Because I knew a little bit about the person. I knew just a little bit about the person. I knew of his influence on this nation. And maybe you see the parallel. How much more do I, should we, behold the word of God, specifically his love? How much more should we look? And you can imagine, you would, if you had been there, you'd have been the same, like, wow, this is so fascinating. And he's telling us, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we could be called children of God. Notice as, he, as I've quoted that, and you can read it, it has been given it's available to discover, to open up, and to realize, to, to grasp, if you could, day by day, moment by moment, I am a child of God. For you to know that, for me to know that, to realize the Father has said, this is what the love that is, that you could be called a child of God. God uses these relational terms to help us grasp what our life can be. We could know him as creator. It would be accurate, agreed? We could know him as the triune creator, uh, a triunity, a, a, a God, a son, a Holy Spirit, all three personages, but it's one God. He conveys for our benefit in this world that he's the father who sent his son, empowered by the other one, the Holy Spirit. The Father conveys to you and me relational closeness. God's design is for the Father to have a significant and relevant role within a family. And that he, the Father, has adopted you and me and us into his family. I, I, there's so much, literally, I have chewed on this verse. This is, you know, I have some that I go to throughout life, especially when you're struggling with life, and this is one of them that I've, I always go to. What manner? Can I discover? Can I peer into? Can I unearth and unveil these treasures that are capsulized in this truth? God loves you. God loves me. Behold, what manner of love is this? that we could be called children of God. The Father has done that. You and I, every one of us, we have certain um, traits, certain characteristics that are related to our biological father. You don't even have to know him, but you, are, you have those distinctives, those traits, your, your, maybe your appearance, uh, your, your bone structure, your body chemistry, your abilities or disabilities, it's inherited. You received from your physical father. 
Do, do you see what we're, we're being told? Behold, what manner of love is this? That you, we, you and I, we've received a love that's beyond anything in this world. It cannot be duplicated, replicated, or produced by anything around us. We have this relationship, and, and I don't mean to kind of just keep talking about it. It's so essential that we take hold and discover individually, privately, intimately, and personally what it means for me and for you to know what manner of love. The word manner there, when he, using that word, it, it speaks of what country, what nation, what tribe, what dialect, what is the source, what world is this type of love from? Because it's, it's not a love that you and I would, could, could just copy. You know, we have certain things in our culture that the word love is used frequently, most frequently, completely contrary to the truth of God's love. It's just a physical act and seeking pleasure for certain things that are oriented to, to self-fulfillment, different things that are related to, to sensual pleasures. It's got nothing to do with this manner of love, this type of love, this love that is eternal. It's, it's, it's the love of God is eternal. It's a heavenly love that changes people to be like their father. Some people want to be Christian because they see the good moral and ethic lifestyle and they attempt to replicate that. But it's weak and powerless because it's not compelled, it's not brought forth, it's not empowered by this unique otherworldly love, this eternal love. What manner of love, what type of love is this that we should be called children of God? The world does not know us because it did not know him. That's something that I hope you um, can grasp. I hope that you can slowly process and and work through and realize there's just some people that aren't going to like you. There's just some situations you're just not going to fit into. As a Christian, there's going to be things that you just are out of place, out of sync, and out of step. And it's not because you failed. It's because you're just not part of this system, if you would. The world doesn't know us because it did not know him. It did not know him. He came to his own, the Bible says, and they did not receive him. He came to his own and, and they crucified him. They chose not to know him. Now when it says here that the world does not, they did not know him, you know, the world does not know us because it did not know him, you know, we looked previously in our study in First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we looked at you know, the things of this world. When he says you know, the world does not know him, he's not talking about people. Because when he says world, we know that God loves the world, meaning humans, the people. So it's not that. We know it's not really the created environment, if you will, the atmospheric presence, the, the dirt we walk on, because God created the world and it was good. So it's not that. What is it? When we see this spoken of, when it says the world did not know him, it speaks of this, this fallen state that this world is in. This world is in a, a disorder called, they think it's orderly. 
There are certain things that God has set in motion, certain even you know, laws and certain things that we see as a, from a scientific study. But there's also a, a spiritual order. There's some things taking place. God's still in control, but he's allowing a time where the prince of this age, the ruler of this present darkness, is allowed to do what he does, the devil himself. The world speaks of the system, the values, the pride, the lust, the greed, the hatefulness that makes up this current world order. Some things in our culture, in our world, in this planet are driven by hate. They're deeply compelled and strongly motivated by hate. Other situations are, 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 you know, people are promoted and they advance off their perhaps charisma or their, their passion or their lust or whatever it may be. And this, this, that's what compels and stirs and moves so much in this world. That's the current world order. But there are people even now that speak of a new world order. Anybody ever heard that phrase tossed out, tossed out a little bit? Well, there will be the Bible. They actually jacked that from the Bible. I don't know if you know that. But the Bible is the one that told us about this new world order. The Bible just describes it different. Where there will be, according to Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a great reset. Seriously, this will be really good. Because all of those worlds talking about will be pushed away. These things that are so self-serving and self-promoting and self-consuming will, will be set aside. And there will be no more sorrow. No more death, no more tears, no more crying. This new world order that God is going to bring about in the great reset after the, the, the literally the taking away, the rapture of the church and the end times chronology coming into play in the great tribulation period culminating and ending with this new heaven and a new earth. But right now, there's the old world order. And I don't have to explain it too much. You live in it. You deal with it in the workplace. You see it in the headlines. You comfort your kids when they've been hurt and you're crying with them because of what's been said or done to them. You understand it, the world we live in. This world does not understand you. This world did not, it will not receive what we know to be the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, now, now, not later will be, not, you know, if you start going to church enough, and if you start doing certain things, then, you know, you're going to impress God, and he might invite you in. No, this says now, according to his righteousness, we'll see in this context, now we are children of God. And it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know when he is revealed. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Um, to sum that up, that basically is reminding us, we've been given a trailer a glimpse of things to come. And it comes through the documentation, the biblical record of the person of Jesus Christ. That we know for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He came to save us. He came to take away our sins. He came that we may be born again. And so that is just a glimpse, can we agree, of what's going to be unveiled and unfolded and revealed in eternity. We know Jesus is Savior. What a beautiful thing. But what will it be to be in his presence where there is no sorrow, where there's no deception, there's no sin, there's none of this stuff that's so common? It's not yet been revealed. And, and you, you, you don't even know, I don't even know what I'm going to be like. It's going to be so different. I can't imagine. I can't think of something and go, oh, 
Well, it'd be way better than that because there's just nothing that's referential. I can't refer to something and go, that's it's going to be better than that. We, we don't yet know. I look at this and go, you know, we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him. I was sharing for service how I, I participate in a seasonal practice. And I know some of these guys are going to get mad at me because I'm going to unveil a secret that many women don't know. And guys have used the secret to spend a lot of money. The secret is called hunting. Um, it's not hunting. It's an excuse for a man to camp in the, in the fall. You get to play in the mud and you get to play with guns. It's reverting back to childhood and it's expensive. But it's okay. It's what we do. So ladies, go easy on the guys when you start talking. You know, because hunting is that's what we do. And I was up hunting yesterday and I got this little, you know, pocket rocket of a vehicle, a little small four-wheel drive, and I'm blasting through these mud holes because where I was at, it was just slurpy. Let that word sink in. I made it up, but it's slurpy. That's what the road was. So I'm just busting through this and gurp and slurps lying over and the wipers are cleaning it off. And, and I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. You know, I'm up here kicking around. But then I got to thinking, you know, man. And I don't know how old you have to be. Evidently, I'm, because I'm 60, I've arrived to where you can be somewhat contemplative and reflective on your life. And that's an environment I can do that in, like when the wipers are clearing the window. And I'm thinking, man, you know, I enjoy life. I enjoy what God has done in my life. But in retrospect and in look, I can be a, pa- a better pastor. My standard for a pastor has not been reached. I can spend my time better. I could, you know, I look back and I think, man, there's just so many things I, I wish I would have done a little different. Uh, as a husband to Kim, there, there's things I know I could have done better. I, I could have provided differently. I could have done this. I, and I'm not going on some guilt trip. It's just healthy reflection. Man, you know, as, as, as a man, there's just things I could have set a better example. As a father, wow, can I study that for a long time and wonder. But it wasn't discouraging. It wasn't in any way debilitating. I found it kind of invigorating to know I haven't arrived I'm not where I believe God would have me to be. And, and I, I believe that's a healthy way to live. But I'm not where I used to be either. Because I'm not where I used to be. I'm in this process. It has not yet been revealed. I really don't know yet how it's going to be. Here's something that's really important for you and me. And we're going to wrap this second verse up already. You will be loved by everybody and everybody will love you. That's heaven. Can you even think about how to wrap your mind around that? How can you do that? How can you love everybody? I will include the bully from fifth grade. I will also mention your ex-spouse. I will talk about that horrible uncle and that terrible neighbor. But you will have not just the capacity, but the environment and everything necessary to love them perfectly. Because you... it. it you will be like him. Do, do you understand that God won't love you more when you get to heaven? He fully loves you now. And he fully loves me now. And we will love everybody. And I think this is so important to realize we will be loved by everyone as well. 
Some of us feel a sense of rejection and different difficulties that are oriented around senses more than reality, more than, or more than truth. And to be in heaven and realize you, there's something that's going to happen there because of his presence and the sin removed, that there will be an existence and a, and a, a time it's just hard to grasp, hard to realize what's going to happen. We've been given a glimpse of it. We're going to be like him. We'll see, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hope in this context and is frequent in the scripture, the New Testament, when you read the word hope, it speaks of certainty. It speaks of confidence. It's not the hope that you use and I use, say, Sunday afternoon. Oh, I hope my team wins. You know, that's just kind of a speculation. There's no certainty to that. This is speaking of confidence and a certainty, the hope. This hope purifies us. What hope? The hope the certainty, I am a child of God. I'll give you four things. One of them is I am a child of God. That purifies, that sort of change. When you know who you are, you live differently. The other thing is the Father fully loves me. The Father fully loves you. Like I say, it's not because like, okay, well, when I get there and I get cleaned up and I get all this worldly wash off, then God's gonna really see me as I am. No, he, no, he fully loves you now. With your failures and your problems and your challenges and your backsliding and your front slipping and all the stuff. He he's fully loves you. Behold what manner of love this is. Discover that. Especially when you're feeling down. Especially when life just slaps you in the face. Don't leave. Don't deviate from this truth. This is what purifies you. The knowledge that I am a child of God. The Father fully loves me. The third one is the world will reject you. God never will. You might be doing good. You might be in a relational bliss, if that's possible. Things might be going very well financially. But it's not going to stay that way. And I'm not a downer. I'm, not, I'm just a real, I just describe myself, maybe I'm just not accurate, but I just want to be real, pra- I want to be a practical person. I, I want to practice what, what I'm digging into. I don't want to be so philosophically tainted that I couldn't put anything into practice. The world will reject me. And that's not a feeling or an emotion. We just read that from a verse above. The fourth thing, so we have, I'm a child of God. The Father fully loves me. The world will reject me. God never will. Be like the Father. Be like the Father. You have certain characteristics from your earthly father. Choose to be like the Father. Well, what does it look like? I mean, when we say love God, how do you love God? Is it, is it just a you know, meditative state or a contemplative discipline where you just bring only certain thoughts in and you let them try to somehow ruminate down to your heart? Or What does it mean, love God? How do you do that? How do we, it says we purify ourselves as he also is pure. How, how does, how will it be? Well, in a very practical way, the way you live gives a glimpse of who you love. The way you live gives a glimpse of who you love. You, you know, there, I say it that way because it's just like a, a quick pick. And, and if I live a certain way and, you know, it's going to show who I love. You love yourself, it will eventually show. If you just keep pursuing certain things. And see, here's the problem with when you love yourself Nobody else can get through to you because <laughs> you don't love them as much. 
When you love yourself, you do things your own way. And you know, your counsel is the worst counsel when it's the only counsel. Uh, mankind can talk themselves into anything. They can, I, you know, I have more fishing poles than I'm going to tell you numerically. Because I've talked myself into needing just one more. You know, now, the sales pitch is more difficult when I've got to run it through Kim. So some of them I bought for her. I hope someday she'll use them. But, you know, <laughs> you see the logic is you, you, if you, you can talk yourself into anything. And especially if you start giving over that. If you, if you love yourself the most, it will eventually show. You love this world, it will become obvious. Your love for God will be, it will diminish in its expression. It'll change. When you love God, you love what he loves. You learn to see what he sees. You learn to talk like he would talk. You learn to have a view of things that's different. You know, many of us slip into a very cynical, always negative, always kind of chippy attitude about this world. Because guess what? This world stinks. Well, you don't. You don't stink. I just told you that God sees he always fully loves you. Why do we take on the mannerisms, expressions, and the verbiage of this world when we're not of this world? It's not that we have to be silly. Oh, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Oh, shut up. Those who say that, I just want to say it to them. I goes, it's not great. It's not wonderful. God is great. God is wonderful. This world stinks. Don't be so philosophically fuzzy that you can't say, man, this hurts. I really could use some prayer on this. Man, I'm so glad that God's carrying me through this. You want to be realistic and, and expressive. How does this purify us? Well, be the relationship with God when it's intimate and personal. It changes us. Our Father is going to be, that love is going to be expressed through us. Now, jumping into the next portion, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. I think we could put this in the straightforward, practical category. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We're going to finish up in verse 9. I'm going to bring this together, so I want you to stay with me through this section. But let's just be straightforward in this verse, verse 4. Don't kid yourself. Sin is an expression of insubordination. It's rejecting God's truth and living against his laws. I'm not talking about like the Ten Commandments. Certainly would be inclusive. A law, a principle, God's truth, his way of living. When we sin, we're saying, I don't need to do it that way. Living with a particular vice or a habit or a practice that is contrary to the word of God, that is sin. It's lawlessness. You're choosing to be in insubordination of God's lordship in your life. And, And most Christians, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've had to work through this. Because there's certain things you're, you're tilted towards, you tend to do, or they're habitual or behavioral, or they're behind you, and you just find yourself slipping back to them. It is lawlessness. It is rejecting God's lordship in your life. So we call him our Lord and our Savior, but then we tell him no. It, it, it doesn't sink. It just, it's so much better just to call it like it is, and then you'll deal with it. And he just says, you know, whoever is tilted towards us and prone to this and, and keeps doing this and is habitually you know, holding on to this and is okay with this, God is not okay with it. 
If his word says specifically and clearly, this is your direction, this is what's best for you, and you say, yeah, probably, but I know people that do this, so I'm going to do this, you're, you're rebelling. It's, res- it's resistance. And I'll tell you how we'll tie it all together because you know, this world we live in is so contrary to this simplicity. In verse 5, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus did not come merely to identify sin. Quite honestly, the, what God had presented to us from Genesis, clear up to Matthew, covered the identification of sin. But it didn't provide, at that point, the removal of sin, the taking away of sin. So he came to take away our sins. Sin no longer has power over you. Temptation will still be there, but the power over you has been removed. It's so important to realize that. Sometimes our dilemma is because we think, well, if God, if I'm really saved, then I wouldn't be doing this, and I wouldn't. No, here's the problem. I'll use myself as an example again. I became a Christian in my 20s, whatever. So I had two decades of doing it my way. And now I'm born again. I'm born of the Spirit. I'm a new creation in Christ. Former things have passed away. All things have become new. I'm no longer enshackled. I'm no longer held. I'm no longer trapped by sin. I'm released from that. But I still have behavioral tendencies. I still have habits. I still have influence. I still have sensual desires. I still have me. And so as I'm now learning to move forward, I'm learning to make new decisions. I'm learning to realize, man, this, this, it no longer has power, but it seems like it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it's because the, the, the body desires are so strong, and I'm learning what these new, this new life is like. And so I want to remind, remember that he came, to, it was, he was manifested to take our, away our sins. He could take our, away our sin because he had no sin debt of his own to pay. Because he did not sin, he has no sin debt, the wages of sin are death, and because he did not sin, he doesn't have that death penalty due, so therefore he can die for a sin, when he raises from the grave, conquers death and hell, he's paid the penalty for whoever will believe him, whoever will put their trust in his accomplishment, his victory. Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. I want to say to you, the key in this text, and we're going to bring more clarity in verse 9, but the key is abides. Some would read this and say, well, if you're born again, you don't sin. That's not what it says. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Abide means to dwell with, to reside with, to be home with, if you would. You can't abide in Christ and habitually practice sin. You just can't. You can't say, oh, I'm close. You know, we're just, you're abiding in Christ. You're processing the love. You're realizing his payment and the whole dynamics related to that. Oh, just a second. I'm going to go smoke a joint. I want to be able to contemplate the depth of this truth real fast. Or I'm going to go be with this person because, you know, I have this passion, this desire, this sexual interest. But I'll be right back. You can't keep doing that and, 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 and be okay with it. It just doesn't work. Those who live that way are miserable. And if you're miserable, I'm so glad that you're miserable. Because if you can do that without misery, you're not born again. You're not, I'm not making this up. You just read it. You can't do that, live contrary to God, claiming lordship, living in lawlessness, 
and say you're abiding with him, but living contrary to him. It doesn't, it's just unbiblical. It's not true. You're not abiding with him. So, you know, man, how do you do with this? If you continually sin and are not miserable, I'm not here to cause you to question your salvation. I'm going to present to you, you don't have it. Like, oh, well, that guy's a jerk. He's so rude. It's like, I would rather tell you that straightforward and have you chew on it than have you walk away from here and never know it. Because let's face it, um, sin is deceptive. And I would rather you embrace the assurance of salvation as a believer than be deceived as a make-believer. So important that we grasp and hold on to it. Let's move on to to verse uh, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. It's because you're born again, it's not so you'll be born again. You see the importance and the difference? Don't be deceived. You and I live at a time and an age of increasing deception, and it's an interesting thing. It's, we are called sheep by, God, by, by God's design. I mean, he just describes us. Sheep have a tendency to follow other sheep without really wondering where we're going. They just go. You'll get a straggler here and there, but a little dog now and then can just bring them all back in and they all just go. Well, why, why do I say that? Because you're living in a time of what's presented as higher education, higher learning. You're living in a time when... People are being deceived by the masses. And you're seeing this. You've seen it really accelerate in the last 30 years. This world will explain away your sin. This world, the system, will explain away your sin. You were born that way. You have an addiction. You have a disorder or a dysfunction or a disease. That is presented... And so many times, it's the point of discussion, not sin, but the manifestation, the expression that's related to your situation. This may explain some of our inclinations, but it does not excuse our actions. See, some people, even you could take kids, some kids may be inclined to, to take something that doesn't belong to them. And, and they may, that may be an inclination most of their life. Another kid may be inclined to something with a little unusual sexual curiosity at an early age. Another may be inclined to just fill in the blanks. They're they're tilted this way, and adults the same thing. They they come to one point. They go, I just I think this is who I really am. And you live in a society that wants you to discover yourself. You don't have to. You're a sinner. That's the discovery zone. Okay, that's you. That's me. And when we can just embrace it, realize, okay, now how do I deal with this? Instead of saying, well, I just, I think I'm made this way. Because if you're made that way, you don't have to deal with it. It's not your fault. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't get me wrong. I, I believe all these things I've identified are real. I believe there's mental disorder. I believe there's all these things that are a result of the fall of mankind. And I believe there's some people that struggle their entire adult life as Christians with their inclination. But they keep struggling. They don't say it's okay. They don't say I was born this way. They don't pass it off as something else. And you, even as I speak this, I would be so lambasted in most discussion groups. I would be pummeled to even present this truth. 
I would be treated as some old school archaic dinosaur hanging on to the relics of the past. And it's just, this is reality. Do not be deceived. You know, healthy people can be deceived. Sick people can be deceived. Disabled or fully enabled, anyone can be deceived. The key to avoiding deception is to stay close to the truth. Jesus said this, for you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He was very clear when he said this very definitive and very restrictive statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He said, I am the way. And that's the, that's the means by which we can avoid deception, stay close to him. Carrying on into verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Know who you're from. I'll just say it that way. Know who you're from. Know who your father is. When you're born again, born of the Spirit, you're, you're his child. You're born again. If we find ourselves not born again, but rather embracing contrary or we're opposed to God, then, then you're literally in that area, you're in that darkness, you're, you're of the devil. Now, I've had people say to me, well, you know, I don't buy into all that devil made me do it, hocus pocus, darkness stuff. I just don't think that the devil, I don't know if there is such a thing. It's a force, not just in a sense of Star Wars, that's not it. But there is a, an agent opposed to God, we call him Lucifer, Satan, the devil, he is opposed to God, a force, that he, he wants to wreck your life. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, you could say, well, I don't believe that. I, I want to challenge you. If you in any way embrace that, why don't we try it in other forces? Like right now, I just encourage you, just go, okay, you know, from here on out, I don't believe in the force of gravity. I believe that's a potential self-manifestation taught by old school thinking. And I really want to believe, I just want to, I want to hold myself in position and deny the force of gravity. I didn't see any of you hit the ceiling. You deny a force doesn't disable it. It empowers it in a spiritual sense. So it's so important that we're like, hey, I, I'm not into the devil maybe do it thing. I believe he doesn't care about me. He might assign a minion, a little, you know, you know, I don't know, idiot in training, devil type thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm not that important. But guess what? There is a presence. And when, we, when, when you're of this, he says, listen, who sins, if you're continuing sin, you're of the devil. The devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, what? Why did Jesus come? Here's one of the descriptions, one of the reasons that the Savior of the world came to destroy the works of the devil. And have already alluded to that. We see that fulfilled in Revelation 21. We see that coming to pass as we see the end of all these things come to play. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, we've had this about three times now, where it implies at first superficial you know, conclusion, or a spontaneous conclusion, oh, this means this. So it causes you to think, well, what is, does that, is that what it means? Because we're told back in chapter 1 that, you know, we sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So how do these synchronize? How do these set in place to provide the strength? Let me read to you uh, uh, a sentence that maybe will help. The present tense in the Greek verb implied habit, continuity, unbroken sequence. A guy by the name of Stott went on to say the NIV has the right idea when translates these verbs with phrases such as keeps on sinning, continues to sin, and he cannot go on sinning. Why do I present to you that quote? Because I'm not a language scholar. I know I didn't mean to surprise a couple of you, but I'm, I'm just, it's not my thing. I would rather present to you, this is, is a way it's seen. This is not just a way to manipulate the text and massage it to make a synchronization. This is what it's saying. If you continue in sin and you have no problem with it, then how can you say you're his? If you can keep doing these things, if I am okay with certain things that are contrary to the word of God, not culture, culture's a little screwy. It's not just these, you know, it's, it's contrary to the word of God. If it's contrary and I keep doing it, then how can I say I'm his? Because it, it's just, it, it just won't, it doesn't sink. It's one of the challenges we face because many people would say, well, if God shows me, I'll believe, but the Bible says you believe and he'll show you. It's a different, different order, different approach. We're going to wrap it up right there. The worship team come up. We're going to turn to Romans 8 to close out our time. When you're born again, it brings you into a new life. New life in God brings new values, new desires. New decisions. And can we simply say in agreement as Christians, that's sometimes our biggest challenge. The new decisions, the new values, what's coming at me, what's pushed upon me in this culture, it has the appearance of good and, and much of it from an earthly sense, from a provisional sense, from a body need sense, is fine. It's fine. Money's not bad. People say, well, money's the root of evil. No, money is a root of all kinds, many kinds of evil. It's the love of money that's the problem. Others would say, well, you know, all this, there's so much in this world. You, there's certain things you need. What we're looking at here is these new values based, I want God to be first. I want to have a closer relationship with him. You know, church, in a sense of just the gathering, won't give it to you. Um, practicing certain things won't make it happen for you. We can see here from this text, it comes from a relationship with the Father. It comes through the work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you would stand with me, I would like to read Romans 8, 35 to 39. We'll then continue in just with a mindset of prayer and closing out our time with the worship team leading us in worship of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, thank you for your word. And I just pray for each one of us to grasp and to realize love. We know so many things around us, Lord. 
are contrary to you. Some things we're drawn into and things that are confusing. Lord, it's hard to work out as we try to sort out why bad things happen, why there's evil, all these things that are so disturbing. And yet, God, may you remind us what manner of love that you've given to us, that you would be our Father, that you would teach us your truth and walk us through your word and we could learn of you and we could reflect your characteristics, your qualities, not out of our determination, but because of your presence. So I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach each one of us. If anyone hasn't taken that first step, it begins this way, just by agreeing, God, I need you. I don't even know what's going on. I don't even believe you half the time. I don't know where to change things, but I just help me to look to you. I know I need forgiveness of many things. And so, Jesus, I would ask you for your forgiveness. I would put my trust in you, and, and you would show me how to do that. That as my new father, born again, that you would nurture and raise me as your infant, your child, showing me these truths and walking me through that I could grow and reflect your presence, your love and all that you are. God, we thank you for who you are and what you do. Teach us your ways. In your sweet and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.